additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Today is the final day of our series, God Is. And this talk today is, I believe, such an important part of our culture, of our day, if you will. And the, the, the environment of which we live in today, this is such an important talk because there's something within our culture that is growing and rising more and more and more is that we want a God who loves us and is kind and compassionate. A God who never says no. And so I can do whatever I want to do. I can serve God how I want to, what makes me feel good, what I like. Disregard what the Bible says, but just serve God and do what I want in my relationship with him because I want to serve a God that's loving. And a loving God, a loving person, would never be harsh, would never be angry, would never say no would never bring any kind of correction or change of course in my life. Would just allow me to do what I want. And so it's, that's becoming more and more and more and more a part of our culture. And so today this really goes against that. And uh, this is a good way to find out what we think of God and how he is. I'm calling this God is wrath or God of the wrath. Looking at Mark chapter 14, and we'll start reading in verse 32. This is the story of Jesus with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to go to the cross to be crucified. Uh, Judas is on his way to have him arrested, and Mark tells us the story. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will but you will. Mark tells us that Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled. And the Greek actually says here to be overcome with horror. So try and imagine that you are um, out and about on your day and you walk around the corner and you come upon a car accident and a person is there and they've been just torn apart and bloodied and you know, body parts all over, the car resting on top of them. Maybe they're still alive, screaming out, tor- horrible, terrible, awful scene. And then you recognize that is your beloved. That is somebody that you love with all of your heart, and you see them there in that state. And you, you get hit with this wall, it seems like, of nausea or this just tightness in your whole body and you feel like you've just been hit with something and your knees buckle and you feel sick and you're in shock and you get overflown with flown with this this feeling of terror and horror and grief and sorrow and panic and 
You're screaming, what am I going to do? This is the idea that we get. This is what Jesus was feeling. He says that he was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, we have accounts of other followers of Christ who faced death so much better than this. I mean, why does Jesus appear to face death so poorly? So many other examples of people facing just as gruesome of a death, just as horrible as Jesus faced, but with so much more courage and poise. Take, for example, Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. And uh, he was captured, and the magistrate said, if you will recant your faith, if you will just deny Christianity to say, I don't believe in Christianity, I am no longer part of Christianity, then we'll let you go. But if you will not, then we will burn you alive at this stake we have right over here. And it wasn't a big, massive fire, you know, where there was a huge fire. They light it. You go up and smoke in a few seconds. This is a tiny fire, a small little fire they light underneath your feet, and it burns you slowly. This takes hours to kill you. You may die of smoke inhalation, or you just may cook there. And so this is a horrible, horrible death. And Polycarp, it wasn't the first time it took place, and so he was aware of it. But this is what he said in response to their threat. He said, The fire you threaten burns but a few hours and is quenched after a little while. But you do not know the fire of the coming judgment. So why do you delay? Come now and do what you will. Or how about Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer? Both of these men burned at the stake in Oxford, England in 1555. They wonder why we wanted to separate from them. But anyway, uh, they got these two guys, they tied them together, and they're going to burn them at the stake. And Vladimir said this to Ridley. He said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust trust shall never be put out. Why is it that the followers of Christ can face terrible torture and horrific death with great courage and poise and strength? It must be that Jesus was facing something that Polycarp and Ridley and Latimer were not facing. Something happened in the garden that Jesus saw that he felt, that he sensed was something coming that shocked the unshockable God. So what was it? Jesus knew he was going to die. He told everybody about it. He told them over and over, in fact, as he was going to die. And he knew that he would be betrayed and arrested and beaten and whipped and scourged and taken to the cross and crucified. He had seen it before. He was familiar with it. And he had his entire life to prepare for it. 
33 years to think about it, get ready for it emotionally. Why is he falling apart like this? Jesus wasn't horrified by the betrayal. He wasn't horrified by the beatings. He wasn't horrified by the torture he was about to endure. Jesus was terrified by something else. So horrific that Mark tells us that Jesus was sweating drops of blood. Now, I don't know about you. I have faced some really terrible, horrific things. No no torture, but some really terrible things in my life that I have seen and faced. But I never sweat drops of blood, nor have I seen anyone come to that point where they are so distressed that they're responding this way. But Jesus is. So what was it that caused him to respond this way? Jesus was looking right in the face of the wrath of God. All his life, he had been surrounded, and for all eternity, been surrounded by this wonderful blanket of joy and love. C.S. Lewis calls it the divine dance, where the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are constantly revolving around each other, building each other up, loving one another, showering the other with praise, and deferring to one another, always glorifying the other. And this has been going on for all of eternity. And now for the very first time, Jesus is facing the fact that he will be cast out from that divine dance. For the very first time, he's looking at a darkness that is moving toward total and complete rejection and being cut off from God the Father. Total separation from God. Total darkness. And it is tormenting his soul. You and I have never known this kind of darkness. We can't. It's impossible because God's goodness and his presence covers the earth. Every morning the sun comes up. Every day, well, not every day, but a lot of days in Washington, we get to see beautiful Mount Rainier. And it's just stunning in its beauty. And, it's, and if you've lived in any other part of the country, you know how rare and unique Mount Rainier is. You know, I was in, lived in Oklahoma for five years, and what they call a mountain, we call a bump in the road. <laughs> they don't know what mountains are. You can go to the top of the City of Faith, which is a 70-story building, and you can see Arkansas, which is the next state over. (laughs) And we have this incredible beauty around us, and Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 that we see the glory of God, we see the beauty of God, we see God by his creation. So it surrounds us, it's a part of us, we see it all the time. We don't live in this terrible darkness that Jesus was facing He was about to taste, to drink of the cup of the wrath of God. Now, we don't like to hear about this. We don't want to think that our God has wrath, do we? That's not a, ooh, isn't that a wonderful feeling? We have a God of wrath. (laughs) We want a God of love, don't we? 
We want a God who will love us and accept us and be kind to us and do what we want and do what we need. But if you want a loving God, then you must have an angry God. Now, before you start throwing rocks at me or looking at me in that tone of voice or getting ready to send me an email on your iPhone, let me explain. Loving people can be very angry. And you've probably experienced this before in your life. If you love someone deeply, in fact, the more you love them, the angrier you get. At some time in your life, if you have seen somebody that you love and they are being abused or they are being hurt or attacked by somebody else, don't you get very angry at that person that is attacking your loved ones? Yes, you do. Or at the same time, if you see your loved ones and they're abusing themselves, they're hurting themselves, you get angry at that because it hurts you. You don't want to see them hurt. And so the more love you have, the more ferocious your anger is. When you see somebody being hurt and abused and tortured in Paraguay, Does it bother you? I mean, it's going on all the time all around the world. Somebody somewhere is being tortured and abused and beaten and mistreated. But you don't, it doesn't seem to bother you. You don't have a reaction. But when it's somebody you love, it's completely different altogether. You see, in the foundation of God's anger is this intense love. The Bible tells us that God loves everything that he has made. And everything that he has made, he called it good, and he loves it. So therefore, he loves it enough to respond when something bad is happening to it. When evil is at work against his creation and against what he loves, then he is angry towards that. He loves it enough to respond, to take action. A loving God and a good God is also a very angry God who is angry at evil and sin. This is also true. If you don't believe in a God of wrath, then you don't have any idea of your own value, of what you're worth. You see, a God without wrath has no need to go to a cross. I mean, why suffer and go through the cross, the agony and all of that to save a person if you don't love them? What other motivation would empower you to do such a thing? Imagine two gods. The God over here on my left, he says, I love you, I love you, I love you. But does nothing for you and is not willing to pay any price for you. He will love you as long as it costs him nothing, and it's free. Or you have a God over here who loves you with such an intense love that is willing to pay everything he has to win your freedom. And so he gives it all to buy your freedom 
he sacrifices himself while saying he loves you. Now let me ask you, which one do you trust? Which one really loves you? You see, you know something, its value by what someone's willing to pay for it, right? You had a beautiful lesson of this in our own household a couple of weeks ago. My second oldest son, Hudson, graduated from high school. And uh, so we did what any good parent would do in about a month or two before we bought his cap and gown. And I don't remember, but I think it was somewhere around $40. And the school sent this note that said, if you don't have your cap and gown, you cannot participate. So you'll get your diploma, but you can't walk with everybody else. You know, you miss the whole thing. And, you know, this is a big deal. He's worked his whole life up to this point to achieve this. And he worked hard. And if anybody knows Hudson, they know how hard he worked. I mean, regular kids work hard. Hudson worked even harder than that. And so an hour before we have to leave, he's got to be there at a certain time. An hour before his mother, Joy, decides to get out his gown and iron it for him like any good parent would do. So she goes to find it where she had left it, and it's not there. And so that panic sets in. It's, oh, God, oh, God, my son isn't going to be able to be a part of this thing that he's worked so hard for. And she felt horrible, like a bad parent that she's got she's to make this happen, got to provide. So she starts tearing the house apart. Well, that goes on for about a half an hour. And then finally, she gives me this look of, without saying a word, look at me like if you don't get your butt off that chair and turn off that channel and start looking with me, I'm going to kill you. She didn't say that. Tears starting to come down her face as she's thinking about how she's going to ruin it for her son. And then to make matters worse, Hudson came in and said, it's okay with that puppy dog look. I don't have to go. And you know, it's all right. I don't have to go and graduate. And we're getting close to the deadline here. And I mean, it's full on panic now. And we're not finding that cap and gown. And every single person in the family is tearing the whole house apart. And it's finally joy, um, said sternly to a couple of my children, get outside and go house to house throughout the neighborhood asking somebody if they've got a cap and gown because everybody in our neighborhood went to that school as well. And so there's a chance that one of them would have a gown from last year or the year before. Go ask them if they would have one. And I said, that's a stupid idea. And then that that motherly gaze came back at me, um, which is the one that T-Rex has. And I said, okay, okay, fine. And so they went out and... Within a few minutes, a few minutes before we had to go, they came back home. Now, if at that moment you had come to my front door and rang the doorbell and you were holding in your hand a cap and gown for Rogers High School, my wife would have paid you any price, any price. We paid 40 bucks for it. If you wanted 500 there you go. Pay it. I mean, if she didn't have the 500, here, take one of these kids. I got four. You can have a couple of these. I, she would have paid anything for that. 
It would have been priceless to her because it meant that her son, his needs would be met, he could go and stand before. So a simple gown of 40 bucks to one person is priceless to her. Even the devil understands the worth of a soul. The devil, when he came to Jesus, and you're looking at it, Matthew chapter 4, and we call it the temptation of Christ. He comes to Jesus and he says, listen, I'll give you everything I have in exchange for your soul. It's worth that much to me. So I'll give you all the wealth in the whole world. That's a lot of money. I'll make you a billionaire or a trillionaire. I'll give you all the power in the world. And that's a lot of power. And I'll make you famous, the most famous person in all the world. The devil offered him everything he could give him. Now, it's interesting to note, he could not give Jesus the more costly things like security and significance, peace and love, which are all far more valuable than wealth and fame and power. But the devil couldn't give Jesus those things because he didn't have them. You can only give what you have. He didn't have them to offer. If you want those things, the more costly things like love and security and significance and peace, only God has those things. You can only get them from God. They weren't the devils to give. So he couldn't offer them to Jesus. But it was an indication of what he was willing to pay for one soul. Jesus And so God has no limit with you and I because we have a limit. How much we're willing to pay, eventually, I think for in our scenario, in our home, there would be a limit at which joy would come before she wouldn't buy your gown. Probably wouldn't sell our children for it. And there's always a limit that we have with God of what we'll give. But when it came to be, making a purchase for your soul, God had no limit. He gave everything. He kept nothing for himself. He gave it all 100%. He paid it all to purchase your and my freedom. So that we wouldn't have to face the wrath of God. Because of God's intense love for us, he has an equally intense hatred of evil sin. Everywhere sin goes, it produces death and destruction. You know that's true. You've seen it in your own life. Sin, everywhere sin comes and everywhere it props up, it just causes death and destruction and mayhem and chaos. And God doesn't want to see his children hurt by it. And so he is wrathful towards it. And so Jesus paid a price so you and I would not ever have to face the horror of that darkness. You see, the darkness was being cut off from God, 100% separation from him. And, you know, we talk about it, and I share it with you, and you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. This darkness, I've been in dark rooms. But this was so horrific. Look what stress it put under the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Look what it did to him. It nearly crushed him to the point of death, just thinking about being in that darkness, being cut off from everything. 
And that's a choice that we have, we can make. You can, people make it all the time. They complain about it. They say, God, leave me alone. Quit bothering me. Quit, quit harassing me. And they don't, I don't believe in God. I don't want anything to do with a God. God doesn't exist. I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist, so I don't have to follow rules. I don't have to go to stupid church. I don't have to do these things. Leave me alone. And people say that all the way through their whole life, all the way up until their last breath. And then God simply grants them their wish and says, okay, okay, I get it. You don't want me. That's fine. We are now separated. We're cut off. You're cut off from me. I'm cut off from you for all of eternity. And that's what Jesus was facing. Or, or, you can look at that and say, Lord Jesus, I accept what you paid for me. I recognize my value because of the price you've paid for me. And I choose you. And you don't face that wrath. Jesus faces it for you. And then you get to go and be a part of that divine dance of that love and that security and that peace and for all of eternity. And some people change their minds at the last second, and it's okay. Isn't that great? The thief on the cross. Here's a guy who'd been living his on his own terms his whole life. I mean, clearly... All of society had, they were done with him. They wanted nothing to do with him. He didn't have any family members there to support him. He was completely alone, hanging on a cross, being killed for his crimes. And right before he dies, he says to Jesus, remember me. I don't reject you. The other guy does, but I don't. And Jesus turned to him and said, you will be with me in paradise. Not outer darkness where there's gnashing of teeth, you'll be with me in paradise. So you can even change your mind at the last second. And some people do. But the beautiful thing is the choice is yours. You can be embraced by his love or you can face the darkness alone. Obviously, my hope today is that you would be persuaded to choose love. Choose a love that sometimes says no. And nobody likes to be told no. A love that sometimes says, no, you need to do it my way, not your way. A love that says, I choose obedience over disobedience. That's the kind of God we serve in the Bible. Because he hates evil, he reserves for himself the right to be angry towards it. That's the God of the Bible. If you take that away and you say, I just want a God of love, then you're not going to serve Jesus. You're serving someone else.